the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we begin a new study in the book of 1 Samuel, we are introduced to Samuel's parents, Elkanah and Hannah. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. The title of the message is Lessons from the Heart. Well, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 and 2 Samuel, if you didn't know, were originally one book. They were not written separately, so it's the same author. And originally it was called the Book of Kingdoms. It was named such because it leads us from the chaos we find with all the different judges to a unified Israel under King David. It was broken up into two separate books when the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was written around the 3rd century B.C. You might be asking, well, if it's about how we get to a unified nation under King David, why didn't they call it First and Second David? Why did they call it First and Second Samuel? Well, while First and Second Samuel do lead us from the dark places of Judges, much of First Samuel retains the spiritual and moral culture of the Judges. And it also starts with not King David at all. It starts with two judges, Eli and then Samuel, the last judge. In fact, 1 Samuel takes us all the way back to the time of Jephthah's leadership. When we get started here, Jephthah will be one of the judges. The Ammonites have been defeated in the east, but the Philistines are still oppressing Israel in the west. Samson is likely at the point in time of 1 Samuel chapter 1, just entering his teen years. Saul won't become king for another 40 years. David hasn't even been born yet, and he won't become king until 2 Samuel. So it probably isn't appropriate to really call it David, but why 1 Samuel, or why is it called after Samuel? Well, to understand that, we have to look at the book's purpose. You see, Judges left us with a very ugly taste. It left us with a poor leader, the very last judge, Samson, and it left us with those three accounts of the wickedness of the times of the period of Judges. Now, on the other hand, Ruth showed us that this wasn't the case with every Israeli, though. There were those who loved the Lord during this time of the Judges. There were those who remained faithful to God and to his word. And while Samson embodied the spiritual and the moral fiber of the times, God raised up another leader who was the exact opposite of Samson. He raised up Samuel. And Samuel's influence changed the direction of the nation. 
In Psalm 99, verses 6 and 7, it says something very interesting. It says in Psalm 99, verse 6, Moses and Aaron among his priests and Samson among them that call upon his name, they called upon the Lord and he answered them. He spoke unto them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance that he gave them. That's pretty strong company, don't you think, for Samuel to be placed next to Moses? It doesn't get much higher than that in the estimation of those who were close with the Lord. So First Samuel, therefore, is almost more of a continuation of Ruth rather than a continuation of Judges. For just as Ruth and Boaz were people after God's heart, so too are Samuel and David people after God's heart. Now, the mindset of Judges is still present in Eli and Saul and Eli's sons, but in the end, it's those whose heart is after the Lord, they're the ones that prevail. And that's the purpose of this book. We're going to look at many hearts in 1 Samuel, lots of different hearts, And each one that we look at will provide instructions to our own hearts on what kind of heart pleases the Lord, what kind of heart he's looking for in us. So are you ready to begin your heart lessons? Chapter 1, verse 1, 1 Samuel. Now there was a certain man of Ramoth Aim Zophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah the son of Jeroham, the son of Eliku, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Here we are introduced to a typical family during the period of the judges. We start off here with Elkanah, the man in the house. He is a compromised Levite. It says here that he was of a certain man from Ramoth Aim Zophim. This is the city or town of Ramah, a city in the kills of Ephraim, which belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. Samuel will settle down here too. In fact, if you go to Israel with us, we'll drive by the area that was Ramah and we'll say, hey, that was where Samuel lived. And that's all we'll do <laughs> because there's nothing there right now. Zophim though is important, Ramoth Zophim. The Aim just means the kills of Ramah. And then the Zophim, though, is important because that refers to the Levitical family of Zuf. The Levitical family of Zuf was Elkanah's family, and they were assigned to this city of Ramah to teach God's law to the people in North Benjamin and South Ephraim. The problem, though, is that Elkanah is not the best example about how to live out God's law. For verse 2 says, he had two wives. Now, This was something that was forbidden by God, but especially amongst the Levites. They were not supposed to take multiple wives. They were supposed to be an example of God's law to the people of Israel. Now, frequently, polygamy in Israel is a point of unbelievers' critique of the Bible. They will say, oh, yeah, you believe the Bible? Yeah, all those multiple wives, and then they list all these other things. What they fail to recognize is that just because it happened doesn't mean that God was cool with it. Just because something happened in the Bible doesn't mean it was okay. It's like the person who was doing the Bible roulette to figure out God's will. The story goes, they were open the Bible. I don't know what to do, God. And so they turned to their Bible and opened it up and they pointed. And the first verse that was there was, and Judas went out and hung himself. And they thought, well, that can't be God. And so they did it again and pointed. And then the verse said, go and do thou likewise. 
Oh, what? And then they did it again, and then they, and they pointed again, and this verse said, what thou doest, doest quickly. <laughs> if you grab something out of its context, you can say all sorts of things about the Bible. You could say the Bible says there's no God. It does. It says there's no God. Just right before it, it says the fool has said in his heart there's no God. Do you understand the point? Just because it happened doesn't mean God was okay with it. God never condones or praises polygamy in the Old Testament, not once. Every single Old Testament writer goes to great lengths to show the negative effects of this disobedience. God's plan for marriage is found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, and it hasn't changed. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. One man, one woman for life. That is God's plan for marriage. Divorce, polygamy, homosexuality, transgenderism, all of those things are absent in God's creation of marriage. They're never there. You don't see them in Genesis. And every single time that Jesus was confronted on the topic of marriage, where did he point back to? Genesis 2. Every single time. So should we. I don't need to go to Deuteronomy or anywhere else to figure out what the Bible has to say about marriage. Those were civil laws that were designed and created to curtail the behavior that Israel learned in Egypt. There are numerous things that are listed there that the New Testament says, you have heard it has been said, but I say unto you, and then it will go back to something God established before then. And marriage is one of those things. And they came to Jesus and said, hey, Moses permitted us to give a writing of divorcement. What do you say? And he goes, well, Moses did that because your hearts are hard. You wouldn't do what God said. So he was curtailing your behavior. But from the beginning, it was not so. And then he goes back and he says, God, he quotes those two verses. From the beginning, God created them male and female. God's design for marriage is one man, one woman for life. If you are married right now, God does not have someone better out there for you. You are called to be faithful right in the situation you're in. There is no option to say, well, you don't like my marriage, so I'm going to go looking for somebody else. If you're a Christian, that's not an option. If you are flirting right now with someone who is not your spouse, stop, repent. Because we see here in Samuel, this didn't work out well. Because the name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this created problems in the family. When you violate God's standard for marriage, you are going to bring pain to other people, people who love you and care about you. You say, well, I don't have any emotional feelings towards my spouse. Okay, repent then and ask God to heal your heart toward them because he can. That's the only solution that will honor the Lord. All other solutions will result in bringing great pain to others. Now, verse 3, we begin to see some of these problems in this family. It says, And this man, Elkanah, he went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, those were two winners. We'll meet them a little bit more later on. The priests of the Lord, they were there. They were priests in name only. 
Eli is the current judge in this part of Israel. Jephthah is the judge on the eastern side of, of Israel. On the western side, Eli is the current judge. He's also the high priest, which gives him a lot of influence and a lot of power. Now, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are kind of running the tabernacle, though, because Eli at this point is too old to perform those duties. So they're running the tabernacle, and like I said, we're going to meet them a little bit later on and find out what they were doing, because these guys were not winners. Verse 4, And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and to her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. Now, the portions here, the fact that he's giving portions to his family, it likely means that he was coming up during a time where you would bring peace offerings. Peace offerings were offerings you bring to the Lord just because you wanted to spend time with him. Oftentimes, when you would come to bring peace offerings to the Lord, they were voluntary offerings. They weren't for sin or anything else. They weren't for a feast. Anytime you did that, you usually had a big, huge, massive celebration. So this was a yearly thing for this guy and his family. It was almost like a vacation for them. They would go to Shiloh. They'd have this big, huge feast. And so the idea is they bring their offerings to the Lord, and then he'd give portions to every one of his family members. But it mentions to Hannah, he gave a worthy portion. Literally in the Hebrew, it means a nostril portion. And the reason it's called a nostril portion is because you've got, well, I think most of us have two nostrils. And so therefore, it refers to a double portion. The Hebrew word implies here that the double portion was given because he treated her as if she had given him a child. He didn't care that she was barren, which back then was a curse. A lot of times that would be grounds for divorce in many cultures because you couldn't provide an heir. But he didn't see her that way. He saw her and treated her as if she had given him a child. And so he gave her a double portion as if it was one for her and one for the child she never had. And why did he do that? For he loved Hannah. The word there means to have a deep affection based on a close relationship. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I go, well, then why did you go marry someone else, you big creep? If you really loved her and you really had this good relationship with her, why did you go and marry somebody else? It's possible he did so for political reasons. A lot of times those marriage arrangements were for that. It's possible he did so because she couldn't have children and he wanted to have kids. I don't know. Whatever the reason, it was wrong, and it caused Hannah deep pain despite their close relationship. Look at verse 6. And her adversary also provoked her sore. The word adversary there literally means her rival wife, the wife with the lower status in the eyes of the husband. She was brought in to have kids. That was it. She was not loved by Elkanah. She did not have a close relationship with Elkanah. And so she was the rival wife. And as a result, she provoked Hannah sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. The word there to provoke, it means to offend or to excite. She sought to offend or excite her to a place of being sore, the King James says. The word there means a feeling of anxiety and sadness. She wanted to hurt Hannah because she herself felt hurt by Elkanah. She wanted to make Hannah fret. The word there means to taunt or irritate with words. She wanted to hurt Hannah through her words because of the hurt she was feeling. Now, Penina's treatment of Hannah is certainly awful. But imagine what it was like to be her. Penina was unloved. She never enjoyed the true intimacy that God designed marriage for. It was a horrible situation to be in. 
and Hannah experiences the brunt of her pain. Despite the fact that Hannah can't control her womb, she is brought to great sadness as if there's something inherently wrong with her, even though her barrenness is the Lord's doing, not Hannah's doing. Now, I find it interesting how the enemy works. He likes to get us to fret over things that aren't in our control, doesn't he? He likes to get us to fret over things that aren't in our control. He accuses us and taunts us. He brings up failures, connecting dots that aren't there so that we walk around defeated, anxious, and like Hannah, very sad. Listen, don't let the enemy do that to you. Stand on the truths of God's word. Stand on the truths of what God has to say about you, not what your heart or what the enemy says about you. One of the most important things that we need to learn to do as Christians is to not follow our feelings. There are many things I feel throughout the day. I'm half German and I'm like, mostly the rest of the other half is Hispanic and then the other bit's Jewish. So I'm full of emotion, okay? The German side of me is always looking to get in a fight with somebody. The Hispanic side of me likes to dance. (laughs) Has other issues. I'm an emotional wreck all the time. I've always got emotions running around. It's in my blood. If I lived based on every feeling I had, I wouldn't walk with the Lord. What God says about you is important. Not what your heart, not what your feelings say. Not what the enemy, surely not what he says about you. I always laugh at some of the things that run through my mind sometimes. I'll talk to Bev about them and she'll go, why would God do that? I say, yeah, it didn't make sense to me either. But that's how the enemy works. I had a dear friend of mine who used to say when the enemy was attacking me and he's like, well, does it seem very rational to you? And I said, well, no. And he's like, well, that's usually a good clue. It's not the Lord. The enemy seeks to stir up these feelings and emotions that we have because We know our hearts are untrustworthy. They're deceitful. And we're fragile. We fret easily. David, he talked about fretting. I'll get to that in a minute. But he talked about it a lot because it's something we struggle with. I don't think I'm the only one who frets. You know, when you lay in bed and you got all those thoughts running through your head, all sorts of crazy things can run through your mind. That's why it's so important that we stand on God's word. Do you really believe what God says? Or are we going to go with our feelings? Now, in particular, the Bible says we are not to fret because we see evildoers seem to be getting ahead. The Bible says that we're not to envy what they seem to possess or what they seem to be taking control of. And we are to never, no matter how much our heart breaks, respond to evil with anger or wrong behavior. Look at Psalm 37 with me. We're going to finally meet David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, at some point in our study of 1 Samuel. But David wrote this in Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is a section of scripture that I quote a lot just to myself. Psalm 37, verse 1. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Man, if I could post that on Facebook without someone thinking I was being passive aggressive, I would. But I can't. You just can't do those things these days. Oh, you don't like my political post? You're correct. (laughs) That's not why I put it up there. 
but you're correct. We don't need to fret ourselves because of evildoers in D.C. or anywhere else. Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Why should we envy their success? Why should we envy what they're accomplishing or seem to be accomplishing? For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and the wither is a green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. That's where our focus is supposed to be. Not pointing out all the evildoers who seem like they're winning. I'm going to expose every evildoer who's out there and who's getting ahead. Everyone must know. Is that what it says here? No. It says, don't worry about them. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shall you dwell in the land and verily you shall be fed. That's what we're supposed to focus on. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. It's not hard to say those words or to live those words out when everything's going your way. It's different when everything's going the other way. That's when the rubber meets the road. Again, will we trust what the Lord says or we're going to go with what we feel? Commit your way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. You don't have to bring it out. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. And fret not yourself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath and fret not yourself in any wise to do evil. Now, here's the real kicker. The guy who wrote this was the guy who did nothing wrong and was running for his life from the man and the king that he loved. The king that he'd been nothing but loyal to from day one to the very end. If anybody has the right to talk about this and speak about it with authority on how we should act as believers when evildoers are getting ahead, it is David. He has more authority than any of us here to speak on this topic. And this is what he had to say. Fret not yourself in any wise to do evil. Well, this taunting that Hannah was going through that was causing her to fret, it always got worse when the family went up to the tabernacle. And this time it shatters Hannah's heart. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 7. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept. She didn't eat at the feast this time. The word here wept, it's, it's the sad tears. It's the, the slow tears and the soft sobs of a broken heart. She wasn't just boo-hooing, you know, where everybody could see and everybody could know. Her plate was in front of her. The double portion was brought. The taunting had been coming at her night and day, and she just broke down. And the tears started to roll down her cheeks, and she just started to hitch. She couldn't eat. She couldn't move forward. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? 
Why are you not eating? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? Elkanah knew the reason. He just didn't understand why it bothered her so much. Why should she ever be miserable? She has him. (laughs) Beverly and I have a joke in our marriage. Anytime she's in tears over something, I put my arm around her. And the first thing I say is, honey, am I not better to thee than ten sons? It's always a bit of an icebreaker because we know, she knows I do not mean that and how absurd it would be to give that kind of counsel or comfort or whatever this guy thinks he's trying to do. The phrase there, better, means that which is of good value, that which brings fondness or enjoyment. In other words, he's not saying, am I not, you know, get over it, woman, you got me. That's not his point. He's saying, isn't our relationship a good enough reason to smile every day, even though this is hard for you? I don't think Elkin is a jerk. I don't think he's a narcissist. I don't think that's what's going on here. It does appear that these two people have a special friendship, a special relationship. But even if his words are accurate, they are incredibly insensitive, especially since it's his decision that put them in this mess. Listen, if you're here and you're married, you're a husband, all right? Let me give you some advice. Ministering to your wife has nothing to do with convincing her of your unassailable logic. The sooner you learn that, the happier you will be. And the more effective you can be to actually serving your wife in some way, shape, or form. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours. Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.